0: Okay, well, it's good to think that through because apparently Jesus Christ must have thought that was a tremendously important clue. A new commandment I give to you. You love one another as I have loved you. For by this, by this, all men out there will know will know that you belong to me. You are my disciples. If you, my disciples, love each other. Quality prioritizing for the brethren. Now, Jesus not only demonstrated ahead of time But he demonstrated it afterwards. And I want us to uh, focus on this for these next few moments. Listen to verses 36 and following, or just verse 36 for right now. Here's Simon Peter's response Lord, where are you going? Well oh, that was a brilliant response. <laughs> and now not only was it insensitive and inappropriate, but it was stupid because he'd already told him twice before. Where I'm going you can't go. And now having said that, you know Verse thirty-three, just said it. Where I am going, you cannot come. As I've said it before, so now I say it to you. But a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. So he he drops on Peter this phenomenal clue to success, and Peter responds by saying, "Duh! <laughs> Where are you going, Lord?" But before we're too hard on him, how often do we do that? Miss the point entirely and ask some other stupid question. Where are you going? (coughs) The Lord's very gracious. He says... uh, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, third time. But you shall follow me afterward. Now, whenever you say can't, you raise another question, don't you? You all have kids. And so you could anticipate what would be the next question after where you're going and you can't? Why? Why? And Peter follows suit. Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? And if you dare to answer that question, you have got an argument on your hand. Because the answer to the question would be what? You are not able. You are not able. And as soon as you say, you are not able, what response do you get?
1: (laughs) Oh, yes, I am.
0: (laughs) And then what do they do? Flex their muscles. I can. I'm tough. Isn't that what Peter said? Look at it. I will lay down my life for you. How could you say such a thing, Lord, that I am not able? Well, I will tell you the measure of my commitment to you. I am so committed that I'll die for you. Jesus answers and says, Really? Will you? Will you lay down your life for my sake? Let me tell you, Peter, the truth from one who knows. Most assuredly, or in old King James English, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Before this night is out, not only will you not have stayed by your commitments, but you will have denied that you even know me. The Lord is so gracious. He could have embellished that a great deal more, couldn't he? He could have filled in the details. Oh, yes, Peter, you got a big mouth. Uh, you, uh, you talk big, but your actions are pretty slow in coming. You will, like a wimp, wilt before a teenage girl who dares to challenge who you are. And you will curse and swear that you don't know me. That's who you are, Peter. Peter. but not Jesus. He, he says enough to bring conviction. Remember the prophecy of Christ in Matthew, um, let me see, I think it's Matthew chapter 12. I've got to look at it to be <laughs> sure. Yes, Matthew twelve, eighteen and following, quoting from Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, He will not break. And smoking flax, he will not quench. A bruised reed, he will not break. Smoking flax, he will not quench. It's about to go out. He won't come and stomp on it and make sure it does. But rather, the smoking flax, he will come and fan it. Back into flame again, and that's precisely what he does with Peter. He could have wiped him out at this point. You, uh, you know that what John writes here from the discourse with Christ is not. Uh, I can't see you, Albie. When I look over there, I keep looking at you. Now I can. I I just want to see if you're awake, is all I want (laughs) to see. (laughs) Uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And the Lord proceeds to lift him up. I suggested to you that not all is here. To to see that a little bit, just keep your finger there and turn back to Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22, uh, as you look at the parallel passage, Look at verse 24, just to catch a little of the context of this. This is really interesting. Verse 24 in Luke 22. But there was also rivalry among them, that is, among the eleven, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, And those who exercise lordship over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, or when you have been turned around, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, here it is again, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So you have a little more there of what the Lord said to him in that little dialogue. But all very uplifting, isn't it? He's, uh, he's pointed. He, uh, he doesn't uh, shy away from the truth. He tells him the truth. Uh, he cares enough to confront. Oh, there is some tremendous instruction for us here in how we handle sin. Uh, To confront the person but not wipe them out. To deal with truth. Uh, Tremendous counseling procedure here in the way Jesus handles uh, Peter. Uh, Let me take one other little digression for a moment. Um, There's a little apologetic value that you might see here, if you can just reserve where we are. All of the accounts do not say the same thing. You've noticed that in part already. Turn to uh, Mark 14. Verses thirty and thirty one. Verse thirty. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You see anything different in Mark? 1430, from John thirteen thirty-eight. Yes. Uh, now, those of you that are a little older, I won't look at anybody, but uh, <laughs> uh, can think back to 1965. And in 1965, in December, Uh, when Life magazine was still in existence. Uh, They had a special edition of Life called The Bible. And uh, that edition had nothing but articles on the Bible. Every one done by a liberal. I thought that was very fair that they were representative in their selection. Uh, But one of the articles was on uh, the New Testament and the Gospels. And across the top of two pages, it says, the Gospels in many and important details are mutually contradictory. And uh, one of the key examples that it brought up was the denials of Peter. It says, one Gospel says, before the cock crows, you will deny him three times. The other Gospel says, before the cock crows twice, you shall deny him. Three times. And uh, therefore, the writers said, if the writers of Scripture uh, make a mistake on such a simple thing as a difference between a one and a two, you may certainly expect that there will be errors in more profound and difficult things, like the Nativity account and the Resurrection account, etc., Well, that was not a new thing that they suggested. That is a criticism that has often been brought up by critics of the Gospels to show that they are not inerrant, that there are uh, contradictions there. So, I've got to tell you this little story because I think it is exciting. Years ago, I don't know how many years ago. It must be almost, must be almost 20 years ago now. Um, I came into contact with a man by the name of Johnston Cheney, who uh, was bothered by such details that were not uh, reconcilable, seemingly, in the Scripture. And Johnston Cheney had been a student at a religious college preparing for the ministry back before World War I. And uh, his Greek professors at that institution convinced him that the Gospels were full of mistakes and that they were not reliable. And uh, the more he looked at them, the more he concluded they were right. There are mistakes there. The more he thought about that, the more he thought if the Gospels are mistaken, then we have no reliable account of the life of Jesus Christ. And if there is no reliable account of the life of Jesus Christ, why am I preparing to preach? And so he got out of the ministry, which I thought was a noble thing to do. I wish more would do the same, who have nothing <laughs> left to preach. And uh, he went into World War One, and during the war... He was uh, convicted, through the preaching of one Dr. W. B. Hinson, who was a well-known fundamentalist preacher in the Northwest at that time, uh, for whom the Hinson Memorial Baptist Church is now named. And uh, he got his life right with the Lord, but after World War I there were not the, uh, the benefits, the GI benefits, that there were after World War II. And so now with a wife and children, uh, he was uh, uh, not inclined to go back into the ministry preparation for it. So he became a uh, wherever aluminum cookware salesman. Do you remember that, some of you? The kind that got all pitted and so forth? All right, (laughs) you got it. And uh, so he was very successful at that and became a district manager for wherever aluminum cookware and was moved from Portland to Oakland to uh, occupy that position. Well, he got down there, and in his middle 40s, he, had, uh, he was afflicted with a double case of tuberculosis, that which was then called uh, pulmonary tuberculosis, and also galloping consumption, from which there would not be any possible healing. And on his deathbed, he said to his wife, would you bring me my Bible and a scissors and a scrapbook? He said, before I die, I would like to try to reconcile some of those problems that were brought to my attention many, many years ago that I have since simply accepted by faith, but have not really worked out in my mind. And uh, so she did that. And that little deathbed hobby lasted for seven years in that deathbed, and uh, during which time, he memorized the Gospels in Greek. This is a layman. He memorized the Gospels in Greek so that he could interweave them in his own mind without having to turn back and forth from one to the other. And uh, after seven years, he got up out of that bed and continued this little project or 16 more
1: years
0: (laughs) full-time. And um, in the process, he did what nobody in almost 2,000 years of church history has ever done, that is to take every detail of the four Gospels and weave them together into one without leaving anything out, that would seem to be contradictory or adding anything in to make the story complete and without contradiction. And uh, during the last three years of that, I came into contact with him because I had another reason for looking at the life of Christ, uh, for the very reason that we're looking at it during these days, namely. Christ came not only to die so that I might have life, he came to live so that I might have an example to follow with the life I gained through his death. And so I was keenly oriented to the exemplary value of the life of Christ, and he was keenly interested in the apologetic value of the life of Christ because the life of Christ is subject to more attack by the critics than any other portion of the Word of God, and you can understand why. If they can destroy the record of the life of Christ, you don't need the rest of the Bible. It won't do any good. Uh, This is the apex of Revelation. So the devil puts his fiercest uh, fiery darts on the life of Christ. So uh, Johnston and I came together after 20 years of his working at this project, seven years in his bed, 13 years afterward, and we began to work on that. And we got one of the first memory typewriters that IBM came out with. You remember those huge, clumsy things? And uh, he went down to take lessons. A man, 76 years of age, to take lessons on how to run this memory typewriter. The girl teaching it was so confusing to him that he didn't go back after the first lesson He just took the book and taught himself how to do it. He said, if I would never have gone down for that first lesson, it wouldn't have taken me as much time. (laughs) But uh, he uh, learned this himself. He set all of the type for a book that is in print been through many editions now. The Multnomah Press has a book called The Life of Christ in Stereo. The reason for Stereo is because Stereo comes from stereos, the Greek term, meaning to pull together all the pieces into one. Uh, It should better be called The Life of Christ in Quadraphonic Sound, and that would fit the four Gospels. But uh, uh, he did a phenomenal job, and in setting all of the type for that himself, there were as many as 76 changes of type on one page, because every time you have another piece of another Gospel, you put a one, a two, a three, or a four up there, And every word of every gospel is woven in to that compilation. That has never been done in history. You had things called harmonies of the gospel, which are not harmonies at all. They're simply four solos put side by side. They didn't harmonize the problems. You don't harmonize them until you integrate them, interweave them, and show that there is no contradiction. That's precisely what a layman, Johnston Cheney, did uh, in 23 years. When he finished that, he was inclined with his gift of the utterance of knowledge. And by the way, that's what I believe the word of knowledge is—not this hocus-pocus stuff that goes on today. Uh, but when he finished using his gift, he would—he would always write me long, uh, single-space typewritten letters, notes keeping me updated and this last one he had two full pages on this note and he ran out of space at the end and he didn't want to take another sheet and so the last line kind of drifted off the page and he said words like this he said I have been away from Jesse and home now for a month I need to hurry home I have finished the work and uh, sent me that note and went on home and that day when he got home he had a stroke And his uh, wife called me, and I said, Tell Jack the work is on the way to the printer. And she told him that, and he motioned for a pencil and paper, could not talk now because of the paralysis, but uh, took the pencil and haltingly wrote on this note, I love you all, and smiled and went to be with Christ 23 years after The day he was told he was going to die, and after he had completed an apologetic treatise that has never been done in history. uh, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh at those who think they really have one up on him. Uh, I say that as just kind of an interesting thing here because At the last of his book, he has an appendix in which he deals with the denials of Peter. And according to Cheney, and I think he's right, if you study the Gospels carefully, there were not three denials, there were six. There were three before the cock crowed once, and there were three more before the cock crowed twice but no gospel records more than three. And Peter probably didn't feel disposed to reveal more than three either, <laughs> if he didn't have to. And, uh, uh But if you carefully weave it together, you will find six. Interestingly enough, a follow-up on that, when Harold Lindzel, former faculty member at Fuller, wrote his book, The Battle for the Bible, and was dealing with the denials of Peter whose work do you think he quoted but Johnston Cheney. So um, God gives us enough along the way to keep us believing, but not so much as to allow us to operate without faith. Uh, There is enough in the Bible to believe, if you will, And there is the absence of enough to not believe if you choose not to. God will see to it that you always operate by faith in him, first of all. Now, come back to these denials of Peter then. Uh, Try to put yourself, if you can, in Peter's shoes. You among the 11 are primary. I don't think we need to argue about whether Peter was primary among equals or not. I I wish we'd get over that argument with the Catholics and everybody else. I think it's stupid. Obviously, Christ said to Peter, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. Uh, And Peter was the one who opened up all the doors, wasn't he? He opened the door at Pentecost to the Jews and at... Uh, Samaria to the half-Jews, the Samaritans, and at uh, Cornelius' house to the Gentiles. Who opened the doors? Peter did. Well, now who cares about who has the keys when all the doors are open? So we go on for centuries arguing about who has the keys. Who cares who has the keys? The doors are open. Who opened them? Peter did. Peter was the mouthpiece. Uh, Peter was the spokesman who preached the Pentecostal message in Acts chapter two. Peter was a fine preacher. Peter was a great spokesman, and Peter was a bold man. He, you know, when when he said, "I'll I'll die for you," that wasn't palaver. Uh, he was really ready to tackle the whole Roman army which he proceeded to do in John 18 you stop to think about it Uh, if a cohort came after you 600 soldiers would you tackle him? plus all the other yo-yos who were coming with their lanterns and clubs so he started after them uh, I, I think Peter meant what he said. He simply had his confidence in the wrong spot. And it wasn't going to stand him in good stead when the going got really tough. But put yourself in his place in front of your colleagues. You have just been spiritually undressed by Christ. He's been denuded. He makes this tremendous boast. And they all hear it. And then the Lord tells him the truth in front of all of them. If Peter would have known the concept of self-destruct, he would have called upon it then. If there was any place he didn't want to be, it would have been there then. Let me out of here. Try to put yourself in that position. And if you were Jesus, how would you respond? Knowing all the detail of what peter would do that night you rat after all i've done for you this is what i get in return you ever said that kind of thing somebody you've done a lot for and they do you in ah after all i've done for you (laughs) i can remember my mother saying that to me (laughs) bless her remembrance in heaven today and like mother, like son I can remember this man saying that to his kids it's kind of endemic to the race isn't it you didn't treat me right I'm going to get you what did Jesus say he didn't say, now turn to chapter 14, verse 1. There was no chapter 14, verse 1. There's just the next thing in the dialogue. And I don't know whether the next thing was what you have in Luke twenty-two, thirty-one. 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. I tend to think that came before. And probably the next thing after Jesus says what he says to Peter in verse 38, is this. Let not your heart be troubled. Can you believe it? (laughs) That has got to be one of the most puzzling statements in the whole word of God to me. But because it is something that is totally unlike humankind that I know anything about. Let not your heart be troubled. Peter, don't be loosed from your moorings. Your relationship to me doesn't hang on what you do. It hangs on who you are. You are mine. For better or for worse, you are mine. There is a teaching going around today that really distresses me terribly. It's called Lordship Salvation. And instead of putting the emphasis on who you are, it puts the emphasis on what you do as the test of whether you are in or out their cure is absolutely indefensible from the scripture and they are garbling the gospel they get people to looking more at what they've done than on who they are if I'm weak don't try to look at my fruit to prove whether I'm a Christian or not. Look at the rock on which you're founded. Look at the Word. And nobody, nobody has stated this more forcefully and strongly and thoroughly than a man who used to teach Greek at Dallas Seminary, Zane Hodges, who pastors a little Mexican church in the Dallas area. He's done that all the time that he's been teaching. He taught at Dallas just as an avocation to make a living. His real mission was preaching at that Mexican church. And finally, after 25 years, they called him as pastor. (laughs) (laughs) And they're paying his salary. If there is any man I have ever read who always convinces that me before he starts talking he has done his homework. Whether I agree with everything he says or not, I can never fault his uh, practice. Always studies and Zane Hodges, I mentioned these works to you in passing in case you're not familiar with them. Uh, Luis, you asked me yesterday some books that have been influential. You want to get these down, because when you ask me that, I can't think of them, see, but <laughs> you got to catch them on the fly. Okay. And uh, many years ago, probably between 15 and 20 years ago, Zane Hodges wrote his first book called The Hungry Inherit. We may have some time somewhere before we get through this week to just do a little sidetrack into that in that book he uh, he distinguishes between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom which uh, very interesting com- uh, concept then uh, much more recently he did his second book which really enters into the battle over this thing called lordship salvation and um, it's called The Gospel Under Siege. The Gospel Under Siege, and his great concern there is that the word believe is being depreciated. Another little side reference. A man by the name of Bungie, B-U-N-G-E, did a little booklet for Awana. Do you know that ministry down here? Awana, is that known to you here? All right. What happened to the word believe, he put in there. Good work. What happened to the word believe by Bungie? And then uh, a later work of Hodges on reward was called Grace in Eclipse. Grace in Eclipse. All of these are published by, how do you pronounce R, is it Redencion? I'm not Spanish. How do you pronounce that? R-E-D-E-N-C-I-O-N. Redencion? Redencion Press in Dallas. And uh, anybody would do themselves a great service to read those books. We, we hear little statements like this being made today in a, in a kind of a sneering, satirical way. Oh, they're, they're, they're into easy believism. Easy believism? Uh, would you like hard believism? <laughs> Aren't we satisfied that, that God said just believe? And is believe always easy? Or are there a lot of things out there that fight against my believing? I can identify more with a man who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I, I don't appreciate people who depreciate the clarity of over 100 times in the Gospel of John, just believe, believe, believe. And when they don't like the results they see forthcoming from just believing, they want to say, if you don't have such and such fruit, you're not in. That isn't what Jesus said. It's amazing to me how they'll rip verses out of context, like... uh, By their fruits you shall know them, as though that's a a verse for being a fruit inspector to tell whether other people are Christians or not. When in the passage it's talking about how you discern a false prophet. And you discern a false prophet by their fruits Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. But not a Christian. I know whether I belong to Christ or not by whether I have believed the gospel. And the moment I believe, that moment I receive eternal life. And from that moment on, God begins working on me as a son making a disciple out of me. And the two are not the same. And that's precisely what God the Son is doing here with Peter. He's a son. He belongs to Jesus. But he's weak. And I'll tell you, by his fruit... That night, nobody would conclude that he was a Christian. Would they? Cursing and swearing that he doesn't know Christ? Would you say, oh, there's a model Christian. By their fruits you shall know them. But Jesus didn't do that. This is amazing. Oh, that we caught this in our lives and practiced it let not your heart be troubled. Somebody does me in, let not your heart be troubled. See, that's what you were saying earlier. Let not your heart be troubled. How many times should I do that? Catch this one. Keep your finger there and look back at Luke 17. This is really funny, I tell you. In Luke chapter 17... Um, the verse that says, if a man sins against you, help me out, I'm trying to find it. There it is. Verse 3, take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now catch this next verse. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now this is a powerful verse against those who want to make penance out of repentance. That's the Catholic doctrine, and it's happening in Protestantism today by voices that are very prominent on the radio. Repentance is not penance. Repentance to change the mind, meta noeo, to have an afterthought, is a genuine change of mind. Now, if repentance is fruit, You tell me how in the world this man could have had fruit of repentance seven times in one day. Would you have time to test his fruit? He comes to you, think it through, at 9.30 and says, I'm sorry, I, I I repent. You rebuked him, he repents. At 11.30, he comes and does the same thing. At 12.15, the same thing. At 1.45, the same thing. At 2.10, the same thing. Really? I think Christ is driving it home very clearly. Uh, Have you ever been caught saying, Hey, buddy, this isn't the first time you've done this the second you've had it. What's Christ say? Seven times, doesn't he? In fact, do you remember how many more he says in Matthew 18? It was Peter who said seven times, wasn't it? Peter was stretching all of his Jewish grace at that point. (laughs)
1: Lord,
0: how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Don't belittle him. That was magnanimous. Jesus says, oh, Peter, not till seven times. You take your number of perfection, Peter, and you multiply it by your number of completion, if you're going to get in this numbers game, and then to just uh, seal it all off, multiply the whole thing by seven again. Till 490 times. Is that what he said? 487, 488, hundred eighty-eight, <laughs> four. no. How far? No limit. No limit. You say, well, there's got to be a limit. Got to be a limit. Okay, you set the limit you want Christ to put on you and then put that on somebody else. Boy, oh, that's not any limit there. <laughs> right. Right, precisely. And Jesus is the model with Peter. I think that's got to be the finest pastoral counseling demonstration in the entire Word of God. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be loosed from your moorings. Remember who you are. Now, what does he do? right after that. Look at it. Believe. In what? In God. See, that's the key to it. He immediately takes him to God. Why? Right action starts with right thinking, and right thinking starts by thinking right about what God is like. And if I have a fault in my action I've got a fault in my thinking and it's a fault with regard to God that's why when John Calvin writes what has got to be the greatest one of the greatest treatises in all of Christendom two volumes of the Institutes of the Christian religion wrote it at 23 and he starts out with what? The very first thing. The knowledge of God the Creator. That's where it all starts. Who is God? And if somehow I'm faltering, my problem is not that I need to whip up enthusiasm or change my circumstances. My problem is that I need to understand my God. Because you cannot intimidate a person who knows what their God is like. You can't do it. Did I refer earlier yesterday to Joseph Tzon? Did I mention that name to you? Let me conclude this section with a, a little... Story here because it's so fantastic. Some of the most vital Christianity today is behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, the greatest churches in Europe are behind the Iron Curtain. And one of those churches is the Second Baptist Church in Oradea, Romania. Some of you may remember two years ago. That Billy Graham preached there for the first time in Romania. He preached the Second Baptist Church. The church seats 800 people. The church regularly has in attendance 2500 people. They don't sit. They stand shoulder to shoulder for the whole service. When Billy Graham was there, they not only had 2,500 on the inside, they had 40,000 on the outside, listening through megaphones, for which the church was fined $7,000. Well, what brought about that church? Years ago, through the ministry of one Richard Vermbrandt, do you know that name? When, oh my when I went back to Portland, I think, he first came to America. Richard Wermbrunt was a Lutheran pastor who, for his faith, spent 14 years, two consecutive seven-year terms, in solitary confinement, 30 feet, feet under the ground, no windows. The only conversation they had with one another was tapping sermons in Morse code on the wall to one another. Richard Wermbrandt is now in America, but one of the men that was influenced by Wermbrandt's ministry was Josep Sohn as a little boy. He received Jesus Christ as his savior in that communist land. He was regularly intimidated by that. When he became a young man, he gave his life for Christian service. He was able to get out of Romania to go to Oxford for his seminary training. The man was brilliant, articulate, uh, spoke flawless English. When he got through, he could have gone to any pastorate in the world he wanted to go to. But he decided to go back to his people in Romania. They told him he was crazy. Why would you go back there? You'll just be persecuted. He said, they're my people. So he went back and began teaching at Bucharest. The Baptist Seminary in Bucharest allows five students a year for the whole nation of 22 million people. Five students. And they're carefully chosen by the authorities. They let Sohn come and preach and teach for a little while, but he hadn't been teaching for long until they realized they didn't want him there. He didn't fit their governmental stripe. And so they sent him out to pasture in Oradia. And in the last five years of his ministry in Oradia, he personally led almost 900 people to faith in Jesus Christ. The authorities were angry. They tried to intimidate him in every way possible. They harassed his kids in school until they tried to make nervous wrecks out of them. They harassed his wife in the supermarket when she would go to the store. They harassed his doctor. Anybody that had anything to do with him, they made life miserable for him. Other than just frontally attacking him because they didn't want to do that and lose their most favored nation status with the United States. And when they couldn't do that, the interrogator finally came to him and told him that they were going to kill him. Here's the reason for saying it. Here is Sohn's response to his interrogator. He said, ah, Let me explain to you what you are about to do. He said, I have preached all over this land of 22 million people. And my messages are on tapes. And those people have those messages. And when they learn that you have killed me, they will listen with greater care to those messages that they have. And the Spirit of God will use that to convict them. And they will believe, and they will be saved, and you will give me my ultimate victory. <laughs> I thank you,
1: I thank you, he said.
0: And the interrogator was livid and ordered him to go home. Two days later, they came. the assistant to the interrogator came to his home and said, Yosef, Yosef do you know what they have decided? They refuse to kill you. (laughs) Even if you want to be killed, they will not kill you because they will not give you your ultimate victory. And so said, can you beat that? (laughs) All these years, I've been seeking to save my life and in danger of losing it. And now when I'm ready to give my life, God keeps giving it back to me again. He said, seems like I've read that someplace before. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of others that have gone before us. And thank you preeminently for the demonstration of Jesus Christ, who in an absolutely unique way portrayed for us what forgiveness is really like, especially toward those who were in him. Help us, Lord, to learn from the example of Christ. In his name we pray.